Hello, and welcome to a new episode of What is X? I'm your regular host, Justin P.H. Smith, and this is a podcast of The Point magazine. Regular listeners will know the rules. On each episode, I have a guest who's eminent in a given field, and we discuss the central question of that field, a question of the form, what is X, in a manner vaguely reminiscent of the Socratic dialogues in which Socrates sought with an interlocutor to arrive at a shared definition of a particularly difficult concept. Sometimes Socrates and his mates arrived at agreement, sometimes they arrived at disagreement, and sometimes they ended up in aporia, which is Greek for something like dead end. So Each episode, we try to see which one of those is most appropriate for the concept at hand. Today, I am talking with Danielle Carr, who is working on a PhD dissertation on the history and politics of neural implants Danielle and I are going to be pursuing a shared definition of mental health. The question today is, what is mental health? So, welcome, Danielle. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here. You know, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, I know your work principally from a few very lucid pieces I read of yours in the media over the past few years, an article in Jacobin magazine in 2018 on mental health, and a more recent 2020 article in The Baffler on neural implants, and in particular on Elon Musk's adventure in, I believe, the Neuralink project, in which not long ago, he paraded some pigs out on a stage claiming that he had successfully implanted chips in their brains that control their behavior and their emotions. And you provide a pretty rigorous, and to my mind, knockdown critique of some of the pretenses of Elon Musk's uh, spectacle and also of the history behind what he was doing. And I think we're going to have plenty of occasion today to uh, unfold this critique uh, in the course of pursuing a common understanding of mental health. But first, Maybe before we talk about that article, I wanted to see if you could summarize for us what the link between these two topics is. That is the link between the 2018 piece on mental health in general, on the historical and political conditioning of our idea of what mental health is on the one hand, and on the other hand, the uh, history of behavior and emotion modifying neural implants. Definitely. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on. Um, sure. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I guess this is a this is a somewhat good way into um, precisely the question that's at stake here. Um, 
So just to explain a little bit about my my research and like you know why I why you should pay any attention to what I have to say on this topic, um, I have done ethnographic and historical work um, on the development of intracerebral brain implants um, as they've been uh, developed since um, since the since like 1930, um, and the development of, of neural implants um, from the early 20th century to the present. Um, that story has everything to do with not only the emergence of um, the data economy, um, mm-hmm. by which everything that we do, every text we send, every uh, movement we make is, is rendered into data that um, can be capitalized upon, but also with the establishment and enshrinement of uh, certain understandings of what adjustment is, what uh, the normal is. And so I guess I'll just talk a little bit about the, the 2018 piece, mm-hmm. um, which was based on historical work that I did at the Rockefeller Foundation Archives. The Rockefeller Foundation was an incredibly important institution in creating the, the discourse of mental health. Um, so, so prior to the, the turn of the 20th century, there were, of course, um, asylums for people who were severely um, mentally ill or, or deranged. Um, but there was not really active scientific treatment um, for, for these people. And um, the Rockefeller Foundation uh, inaugurated um, the discipline of psychiatry as a medical profession. Um, and, and what's interesting is that uh, the enormous amounts of, of money that were poured into the creation of this discipline were, first of all, directly culled from, right, Standard Oil's, like, uh, monopoly. Um, mm-hmm. like, so there's a, there's, there's a very direct um, correlation between capital accumulation and the establishment of this discipline. And so unsurprisingly, uh, there were a lot of uh, assumptions that were built into this discipline that um, reflected particular um, political priorities. And mm-hmm. so the discipline of psychiatry was essentially crafted with a technocratic vision in mind, which is the, which is the attunement of the individual um, to a certain norm um, through, through the idea of adjustment. So, mm-hmm. so, so psychological health is adjustment mm-hmm. um, to a harmonious social whole and finding one's place um, within that. And so um, what I tried to do in the 2018 piece was to problematize a little bit the, the terms of the discourse um, that's, that has been handed to us, mm-hmm. which is um, that mental health is, is completely biological and mm-hmm. to try to show its, um, its ideological contours. Mm-hmm. And that obviously carries through to the present moment in which we find ourselves, um, where Elon Musk, who is you know, best understood as, as being totally in lockstep with uh, the data monopolists that like, rule the economy right now, is saying that he's got a neural implant that can cure everything from blindness to depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously these neural implants are hugely data productive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the idea that, that, that mental illness is, is a biological reality in a sort of unreconstructed way, um, does have obviously a lot of, a lot of, um, ideological, uh, roots. So that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. So I, I think, uh, if I could try to summarize your point, uh, about Elon Musk, uh, in a few words, and you'll tell me if I have this wrong, it's uh, that he is operating under the pretense 
that the implant is going to deliver something to our brain, but the real purpose of this project is what the brain is going to deliver to the implant and then be harvested for uh, economic purposes. Is that right? I mean, that's certainly, that's like one way of describing it. Now, having done a lot of ethnographic work with um, neural implant development, Mm. you know, I think it's difficult, like the science is very much out on whether or not it works for certain applications. So deep brain stimulation is the most common form of of neural implant. And Mm -hmm. that works pretty well for movement disorders Mm -hmm. because it's very easy to localize um, where tremor is coming from. And, um, it's like the gold, you know, DBS, deep brain stimulation is the, the gold standard treatment for, uh, movement disorders. But when it comes to these more socially constructed concepts like depression or anxiety or, um, sadness or, or any of those things, um, obviously the idea that there's a place we can zap in the brain is, is pretty bonkers. Um, and like the science is, is just very much out. Like there are, there are a, a huge number of types of depression, right? Mm-hmm. The, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which really gained hegemony in the field in, in 1980 with its, with its third publication is essentially a group's diagnoses together on the basis of common symptoms, but there's no guarantee that common symptoms indicate a shared pathophysiology. So Mm -hmm. to cite one instance, um, you know, someone who's experiencing grief um, looks a lot like someone who is depressed, Mm -hmm. right? And so, and so it's, um, I think it's a question of what do we mean by these technologies working, Mm -hmm. right? There's working in the sense of doing what, um, what Elon Musk at all say they're going to do. But there's also like what's their real um, economic function, right? Mm-hmm. And I do think in that sense, um, working might be um, harvesting enormous amounts of data. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, now, you've kind of uh, not exactly kept your uh, kept your, your your cards close to your chest here. You've uh, said what you think mental health is, uh, though you did so en passant, I think, um, um, as if we could as if we could take it for granted when you said it. Uh, disorders uh, of the sort we find in the DSM are socially constructed, and I wanted to pause there for at least a moment to allow you to spell out what exactly you mean by that and whether that is uh, something you would describe as an anti-realist commitment or whether, whether there's a way of holding on to real ontological commitment to uh, such diagnoses as depression, while also at the same time recognizing their historical embeddedness and the role of ideology in producing them. Yeah, I mean, I think that is in some ways the question. So mm-hmm. I'm glad we're um, I'm glad we're getting to it. And uh, I think that one way into this to lay my cards further on the table is to is to say, okay, like what is it that we mean by ideology, mm-hmm. right? And um, I was recently reading Althusser's um, book uh, about ideology and science, and he provides a really wonderful definition that I hope you don't mind if I read. Um, He says, an ideological proposition is one that, while it is a symptom of the reality other than that of which it speaks, is a false proposition to the extent that it concerns the object 
of which it speaks. So in much the same way that, for instance, the psychoanalytic symptom is an index of some truth, even if the hysteric, what the hysteric is telling you is not true. The hysteric mm-hmm. is telling you something that is true. That's how Althusser says ideology operates. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in a moment, especially with the you know pandemic and climate change, where what was once a rather robust critique of, of um, ideology and science um, that was present on the left from, you know, particularly in the 1970s, has we've dialed it back um, a little bit, right? Because, because suddenly, like, the science seems to be on our side, or at mm-hmm. least there's a reading of the science that yeah. is on our side. And I think that I, um, I just, I urge caution in, mm-hmm. in uh, abandoning the ideological critique of science, because we commit precisely the same naturalistic fallacy as, you know, our enemies on the right who mm-hmm. say that, of course, like the, the nuclear family is biologically uh, oriented or that um, race correlates with violence or something like that. When we, when we think, oh, like the science is on our side. Well, the science is not necessarily on our side, right? There are multiple forms of interest operating in science. And so like, for instance, Philip Morawski makes this point, which is that, you know, the science is not um, open and shut on our side about climate change. There are a lot of technical solutions to climate change that don't involve redistribution and mm-hmm. decarbonization that will be hugely um, lucrative um, for, for capital. And so, so that's, that's, that's where I, that's where I come from on the question of, of ideology. And so when we talk about um, is mental illness real or not, I think one of the first mistakes um and you know this is like you can see it play out historically and be like yes indeed that did not work was for instance the anti-psychiatry movement right i was going to ask you about that yeah right and 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 the critique of psychiatry that kind of became a certain strain of it that became prevalent in the in the new left um, movement against psychiatry was not just a critique of the institutions um, in which uh, mental treatment was being transacted as being totalitarian or misogynistic or racist, all of which were true, Um, but to say that there's no such thing as mental illness. In fact, the politics of madness is like, it's good, actually, Mm. Um, or it's completely discursively um, uh, conducted. And that's not the right answer either, right? There are... um, there is such a thing as the body and there, there are definitely um, extreme, you know, cases of, of psychosis or, or extreme cases of uh, maladaptive affect um, that are biologically mediated. What I'm talking about is first of all, the medicalization of things of, of everyday life, um, which was a key part of the, of establishing psychiatry in the early 20th century, Adolf Meyer and, and the early psychiatrists were very explicit that what they wanted to do was to apply psychiatry, not only to um, cases of like florid psychosis, mm-hmm. but for the problems of everyday life, for everyday life and, and normal people to be uh, psychiatry's ambit. And this had everything to do with selling the discipline to, um, to funders like the Rockefeller Foundation, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that, and there's also the way that um, causality is mediated through these diagnostic categories, um, which have the effect of individualizing um, affect and and stripping affect of its context. And I think like we're in a moment where there's a the 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 causes of widespread immiseration have like never been more 
obvious. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're in a very good moment to make this critique. Um, mm -hmm. But we're also in a moment where like widespread immiseration is being hugely capitalized upon like the um, mental health apps that mm -hmm. market is currently valued at 928.9 million in 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, right. So, so I think we're in a moment where we need to um, really take back the terrain of, of enforcing an ideological critique. It's highly paradoxical then, isn't it, that, or not paradoxical, but maybe uh, absurd, uh, that uh, it's people who are directly connected to the production of these conditions of immiseration who are also setting themselves up as the, uh, as the ones offering the solution, isn't <laughs> it? Is that, is that part of your critique? Well, I mean, I think that it's like, what could be more um, expected? Right. Yeah, and this is, you know, this has everything to do with what we mean by, by when we talk about, um, about hegemony, right? Which mm -hmm. is the convincing society through inaugurating civil institutions like universities, like medical institutions, um, that it is within everyone's interest to go along with uh, certain narratives that in fact serve only one small group of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, right. So it shouldn't be surprising, in fact. Tell me a little bit more about anti-psychiatry as a movement, because I think there's a kind of uh, demotic common sense that I hear a lot, particularly from students who haven't thought that much about the question of psychiatry, might not know what anti-psychiatry is, but are able to produce such insights, and I'm sure you've heard this and thought about it, as that in other cultures, schizophrenics are shamans. Is that kind of explanation a legacy of the anti-psychiatry movement? Does it contain, in spite of its banality, a certain kind of value as an explanation that, that there are cultural settings in which mental illness might not be experienced as mental illness? So this is kind of, um, there are two strains, uh, uh, two general movements of thought that we're describing here. Mm -hmm. One, and uh, in the, in the, the sort of um, schizophrenics or, or shamans, um, one, I think would, would fall more under the line of um, what's often called psychological anthropology, which really started having its heyday in the American Academy in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that... Um, that has a, a tradition of, of looking at how, um, how not only how other cultures um, treat or categorize mental illness, but also kind of problematizes um, by default, um, you know, American diagnostic um, systems. That was not so, pro that was not so much a part of the anti-psychiatry project, which was a very historically um, situated project that really congealed um, in the late uh, 1960s. I think it's a fascinating um, moment historically and uh, discursively uh, uh, because it united such strange bedfellows, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? You had, um, you had uh, kind of like uh, May 68ers mm -hmm. um, in on the same team as um, as American libertarians mm -hmm. in this peculiar kind of like Californian ideology right, right. moment, right? And um, so the anti psychiatry movement, I think, was defined by um, an anti institutionalism, mm -hmm. and there had been 
movements throughout the 20th century um, to to better conditions in psychiatric treatment, um, perhaps the most notable of which, which uh, plays into what we were discussing earlier, is um, was led by a man named Clifford Beers, um, mm-hmm. you know, very bright guy who found, who suffered a nervous breakdown in, uh, I want to say like 1915 mm-hmm. and, um, you know, finds himself, an upper middle class guy finds himself in just like this, these horrible conditions in, um, in an asylum. And once he gets out, he writes this memoir called A Mind That Found Itself and, uh, establishes the National Committee for Mental Hygiene. Now, the, Na- the National Committee for Mental Hygiene was specifically oriented to bettering the conditions of people who found themselves in these asylums. Mm-hmm. But the Rockefeller Foundation essentially funds and in so doing co-ops this movement and makes it about applying psychiatry to mm-hmm. the problems of everyday life. Right. But throughout the 20th century, there have been multiple movements to, to better the conditions of um, of people in these institutions and the anti-psychiatry movement was a particular iteration of that that was also connected to the sort of like post um the critique of stalinism mm-hmm. the critique of nazism the critique of total institutions that was going on throughout the 1950s to say psychiatry is a part of a uh, system of, of societal oppression that um that institutionalizes uh certain forms of normalization um and so there were there were a lot of uh there were a lot of projects that that uh were aiming to just totally abolish um Mm -hmm. uh, psychiatric institutions and you know it's interesting because like one of the reasons that the anti-psychiatry movement died out was that the american right could not have been more thrilled Mm -hmm. to defund Mm -hmm. um, Public health. Yeah, I, I think I recall hearing probably something apocryphal about uh, Reagan uh, when he was governor of California having a staffer who had recently read uh, Foucault on uh, the birth of the clinic uh, and madness and civilization and was happy to advise the governor uh, about the discursive production of mental illness as a pretext for turning mentally ill people out on the street. And, I mean, this is, again, probably apocryphal, but whether or not it's real, it gives us a kind of exemplum of the strange convergence between this very 60s-spirited human liberation philosophy on the one hand and the birth of uh, austerity in the service of the political right on the other hand. Right? right. And it's like, this is like, could you ask for a better example of the uh, it's all constructed critique going wrong than this? I think it's like, it, it feels a lot like, you know, like Latour, Bruno Latour yeah. being like, okay, but, but, but not about climate science, like right. dialing it, dialing the, the social construction critique back a little bit. But yeah, I mean, this was used as a pretext basically to empty um uh, to empty asylums in the name of integrating um, c- care more into communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, like they did the first thing and then never quite got around to doing the second. And right. It's interesting in many cases, um, these former asylums were directly repurposed into mm-hmm. prisons, right? Right, um, right, right, right. Another kind of total institution. You are interested, well, first of all, a brief comment about Bruno Latour, and and this might be getting us off topic, but 
you seem particularly interested in the peculiar polarity reversal that uh, seems to be at work when we look at ideas about social construction in general, and mental illness is a good example. And since, what is it, his 2004 article in Critical Inquiry, Latour has indeed been worried about the responsibility critique has, has borne for bringing about a general attitude that, in a sense, we uh, are capable of generating and maintaining our own truths as we wish. And doing this, it was discovered, is something that is possible for people of any political stripe, right? And so Latour got kind of freaked out about that. Rainy Daston as well has uh, confessed that, that there's at least some responsibility on quote unquote, our side for the production of such such monstrosities as the Creation Science Museum of Kentucky and things like that. So is this something you're worried about? Is this a difficult uh, terrain to navigate? What lessons do you have somewhat, you know, some years now down the line from, from that moment of awakening that I see as happening in the early 2000s, whereas the 1990s, I recall, as being a time of just full-bore, unworried uh, theorizing? Yeah, it's like... In so many ways, it's like I, I was born in 1990. It's like the 90s, like, just seemed like, you know, what a time to have been alive, yeah. right? Because, like, you have the kind of end of history, like, Clinton Knight consensus in place. And it's like, well, we can, like, galaxy brain ourselves um, pretty scot free. Right. Because, like, nobody's listening to us in right, a sort right, of a way, right? right? right like, yeah. like, we're you're, like in like English departments, yeah. and, like who cares? Yeah, right, right. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that it really exemplifies the, the, the both the opportunity and the danger of, of, of the moment that we're in right now. And I think one way to, to get into this is, is there's been a lot of talk about Luddism and is, is a left politics of te- technology or science just Luddism, like smash the 5G um, we don't want data collection. We like make some of this science just indeed stop happening. Mm. And it's a question I think about a lot because I think that that plays into some of the same um, impulses that were animating the, for instance, the anti-psychiatry movement, right? Mm. And I think that what we need to move into is is to understand that science is not something that has um, an inherent politics that are going to be inevitably transacted through it, right? There are multiple political valences of, of, of science and technology projects. And so obviously um, care for people who are suffering mentally is, is like something that we want to be doing, right? Mm-hmm. And the question is, is, is how? So, you know, for instance, like when we think about Medicare for all, mm-hmm. um, which is going, one of the points that I like, one of my big axes I'm always grinding is that Medicare for all, it's, if successfully implemented, is not simply going to be the system of American healthcare remaining intact right. structurally, and then the state picks up the tab, right? right? Because the entire like, capitalism has been baked and profit making has been baked into what we even conceive of 
as a medical problem in the first place, mm-hmm. right? And so, and so Medicare for all, sure. But then also like, you know, investments in social housing, investments in green spaces and so on. And D, taking some of these things that have been folded into healthcare out of that domain um, is, is going to be a project of like the left is going to have to deal with, I hope, if we start winning. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. But at the same time, if I can challenge you a little bit, that sounds uh, to me like an opening for the the this tendency towards hyper medicalization of all of human social reality. That I think you're also a, a bit worried about, right? Like I see, for example, the uh, physician's recommendation that you wear your seatbelt, and of course if you need to have your skull put back together because you've been in a car accident with no seatbelt on, that's a medical matter. And at the same time, it doesn't quite seem to me that that putting on your seatbelt is a medical matter, right? And similarly, I mean, I've confessed to you that uh, that the period I know best uh, is prior to 1800. And I'm looking at a time in which the idea of what medicine is, is undergoing radical change. But still, for the most part, it means things like you know, getting, uh, get, getting leeches, uh, getting, you know, bloodletting, um, maybe even getting a haircut, <laughs> right? Um, and, uh, I certainly it, had haircuts, but I was like, this was a medical intervention. <laughs> um, and so, uh, uh, all of this makes me think that, um, that the, the, I mean, this is probably the case for any uh, science or even for any human techne, so to speak, the bounds of the discipline of medicine are extremely fluid and kind of always up for grabs. But do you really want to think about a future more just medicine that extends even further into uh, social reality in general to kind of uh, maximize human thriving? Or do you want it to be somewhat closer to the blood bloodletting side of the continuum? You see the um, question? Yeah, I do see the question. It's funny because I would say that my, you know, my line is that we are going to have to demedicalize enormous parts of human flourishing, mm-hmm. right? Which means, and to be specific about that, what I mean is by medicalization is um, the framing, not just discursively, but as that is enacted through institutions and infrastructures and bureaucracies, right? Of certain problems or entities as being the purview of medical personnel. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why this is important, uh, other than the fact that it would work better, right? It would work better for people to have social housing where they're not having uh, nervous breakdowns constantly Mm -hmm. that's bringing them to the ER that's like, you know, causing enormous cost um, to to the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Like, other than that, uh, it... One of the problems with the medicalization of everything is that overwhelmingly um, the, the psychiatric profession represents certain class interests because it is drawn from certain class interests, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Since the Flexner Report, which was the 1910 Mm. uh, restructuring of American medicine, 
that process of installing certain certifications where you would have to be university trained. And by the way, we don't accept universities with like overwhelmingly like black student mm-hmm. population, right? Um, medicine has been created as uh, an overwhelmingly white, um, like wealthy, um, at that time, predominantly male institution. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I don't think we need to get into like the question of the different ways that identity identity categories are working now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like, I don't think necessarily that having more like wealthy white women in psychiatry is necessarily like the answer to the problem. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and so putting these social problems in the hands of essentially um, technocrats from Mm -hmm. a certain class is I think like not, um, that's not the answer. Right. 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 Um, So it's not further reach or overreach or hyperextension of the notion of the medical that you envision in the transformation of the healthcare system, but rather uh, kind of um, seeing to it that certain things don't enter within the scope of medical experts at all. Yeah. Maybe getting us into a bit of hot water but if we can go back to the DSM, and then I want to talk more about neural implants after that, the question of uh, the ideological and historical embeddedness of diagnostic uh, terms, how do we navigate the current reality in which increasingly people seem to be invoking diagnostic terms as part of their own conception of their own liberatory project, right? For example, PTSD. Uh, There's a a huge amplification of appeals to this diagnosis, perhaps to the self-diagnosis, as part of an argument about justice. Right. So what do we do about that kind of use of what might be, I don't know, to someone like you who is attuned to the historical and ideological shaping of the way we talk about uh, 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 mental illness and about mental uh, and about psychiatric diagnosis, what do we do about this usage of that kind of language? It's such a good question, and it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. And um, I do think that you're right to point to the sort of overlap of what we might call a moral economy of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what that's a term from uh, anthropologist Dear. That song. Oh, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he wrote this wonderful book called uh, Empire of Trauma. Yeah. Um, and and the the medicalized disease entity or pathology entity called trauma. And I mean, this is this is sort of a, maybe an interesting institutional history point, but um, really the efflorescence of trauma studies and the generalization of the trauma concept came post 9-11 with the enormous increase in um, funding Mm -hmm. for um, projects studying PTSD. And as that kind of scientific cottage industry began to grow and and institutionalize itself, 
um, something called complex PTSD um, began to be studied. Of course, people had been people have been looking at these questions of trauma for some time. Like most notably, Beth Vanderpool, mm-hmm. um, who wrote a book that is, I think, currently at the top of the Times bestseller list called "The Body Keeps the Score." Mm-hmm, but right, there's a generalization yeah. of the trauma concept to mean kind of just the plasticity of of subjectivity in relation to um, chronic stress, aka what most of our lives look like right now, but particularly people um, who are poor and Mm -hmm. non-white and uh, Mm -hmm. so on. And so um, we're really talking about two things here. One is the plasticity of the body that in response to acute stress, like getting fired out in Afghanistan or chronic stress, like living as a single mother on the projects, Mm This does introduce um, biochemical changes, like, for instance, um, elevated cortisol. Um, This produces changes in neural circuitry, like, for instance, hypercoherence between the uh, frontal lobe and the amygdala, which is a kind of dual almond-shaped structure deep in the brain that uh, activates um, uh, around um, emotions like fear. Mm -hmm. Um, And it produces things like hypersensitivity and so on, or hypervigilance. and that's all real, right? And these are real things that are happening to people's real bodies. Um, what I think we need to take care with is, is saying that just because it's happening to our bodies, that the solution is to go to psychiatrists or venture capitalists who are funding like mental health apps or VR, right? Like I was talking to a friend of mine who works um, in the MIT Media Lab, um, just yesterday about um, a, a training that is being developed at, uh, at UCL uh, for people who um, are sexual harassers. <laughs> and you put on a VR headset uh, and you are in the position of a woman getting sexually harassed <laughs> by someone who is like a, like a VR creation of you. <laughs> right. And so, and like, and so, I think that there's a danger in saying, well, we agree on the problem, which is that we are all in some sense traumatized um, and saying, well, okay, I think, I think that these particular people have the solution for it. That's one thing. (laughs) But the other thing is I think um, the individualization of the trauma language. And I, I think we need to kind of pry open a way of talking about the collective conditions of things really sucking and life Mm -hmm. being increasingly hard mm-hmm. that don't resort to an individualization of trauma where we need to just go talk to our shrinks or, or take our medicines. Um, and I think that, and so I think that there is an exciting like left valence to the sort of emerging trauma language, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, and we all know what we're talking about here when people are, are mobilizing trauma for what are essentially individualistic ends to like mm-hmm. score points in an argument or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I'm traumatized. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's precisely the sort of like, you know, maybe entrepreneurial use of the right. world economy of trauma. Do you want to say more about the, this uh, latent uh, left potential uh, in, uh, in the use of trauma language? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that when we talk about trauma, um, one way to think about it as, as um, the way that social conditions register in mm-hmm. the body and, mm-hmm. um, right. Mm-hmm. And that's the basis of collectivity, right? That's a shared, like, we all know what it feels like to be um, 
depressed from being in quarantine because the state refused to pay people to stay home. Right. And so I, th- I think that there is, there's a way of thinking about embodiment and the plasticity of the body in relation to shared environments that um, is the basis for, for um, collectivity. Right. I gave the example of PTSD, though I could have perhaps used other examples that are not connected to trauma of, again, mobilizing of diagnostic terms uh, to account for our our condition and our uh, bad fit with institutions or with the economy as a way of attempting to articulate what one perceives as an injustice. But my conviction or my suspicion uh, is that this is less than ideal language for doing that, right? Every time uh, someone, again, to get away from trauma, every time someone uh, says that they can't take a test because they have ADHD or they need these or those uh, special um, arrangements, um, this is perpetuating, is it not? Uh, the account of things on which there's something wrong with that person's brain, right? Uh, They came out wrong. Um, And uh, what I always want to do is reassure them that there's nothing wrong with their brain and that, uh, that there's something liberating in discovering that, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely... Part of what we're talking about here here is adjustment and normalization to mm-hmm. unlivable conditions, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, for instance, the United States military is a huge funder of um, work on PTSD now. Mm-hmm. And partly that PTSD is a kind of cover story for putting enormous amounts of federal funds into the development of data ex- uh, data extractive technologies. Like, mm-hmm. you know, DARPA is um, a big funder of uh, neural implants. And the cover story there is it's for PTSD, aka it's good, right? And, mm-hmm. and meanwhile, um, it's it's part of subsidizing a pipeline that ends up with Elon Musk and, and Neuralink. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also um, when you know when we think about the very real problem of um, veterans returning from a war where they have killed a large number of innocent people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that their suffering doesn't matter, but that they, you know, that, that reaction is in some ways like registering mm-hmm. something very real. And so when we think about like what treatment for that would look like, you know, um, I think that just making those symptoms go away is not necessarily like the right answer. Yeah. Right. And this this connects to your sort of question about like the, you know, the student who wants extra time on the test, which like, by the way, I'm never like carceral teacher you know like do like basically do whatever like thanks so much for showing up oh yeah of course of course me too you know it's not it's not that I tell them no you can't have extra time in fact I'm not allowed to tell them that but I wouldn't even if I were allowed uh, even in the French system at this point um but still uh the fact that this is part of so many people's self-conception today uh seems to me to be not exactly part of a the bending of the arc towards human liberation. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is interesting the 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 way that certain um, 
certain diagnoses come to be a part of people's um, identity and construction. And to take the example of depression, for instance, there this was um, the the ballooning of the term and uh, 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 depression that really began um, in the eighties, but took off with um, the enormous advertising and um, selling of um, blockbuster drugs like mm-hmm. Prozac had everything to do with recruiting people mm-hmm. into understanding the conditions of their life within this terminology. Mm-hmm. So there were, um, there were, you know, questionnaires that you would get or that would be on, um, that would be on television where do you have X, Y, Z symptom? We'll mm-hmm. talk to your doctor about Prozac. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there is something seductive in this clearly because it, it worked um, with, with saying, because it's biological, first of all, you are experiencing something real. And secondly, it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. And that in many cases is true. Mm-hmm. What you are experiencing is real. And secondly, like, yeah, it's not, you know, but, but the, the way that these categories are constructed is often their, their rhetorical effect is to um, make it their domain of one individual's body. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right, right, right. So, um, um, then this kind of gets us back to the question of social construction and how we how we want to understand social construction. I, I mentioned to you earlier that I'm uh, an admirer of Ian Hacking's work, and you uh, one of the uh, greats, uh, one of the greats, and you confirmed that that this is um, good taste on my part. Uh, good judgment on my <laughs> part, I, I should say. It's he's not, also a wonderful writer. He's also, yeah, so it's, the, it's aesthetic and well. intellectual at once, right? Um, uh, but, you know, I, I, I love the historical case studies of things like fugue syndrome um, uh, that uh, swept up a lot of young men uh, in the era around World War One when they would start walking in one direction and they would, you know, wake up in a village in France and the next thing you knew they were in Istanbul and couldn't, uh, couldn't tell you how they got there, but it turns out they walked in a fugue. And there are other such historical examples. Um, in the 1970s, the proliferation of cases of multiple personality disorder that Such seemed directly case. connected to the um, to the film Carrie, uh, right? That's what made it a cultural phenomenon. Um, and you can take examples from earlier centuries like St. Vitus dance in the Middle Ages. And, you know, there, there are many, many such examples. Um, and Hacking's general line that I tend to agree with and that I, 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 I think I have it right is that um, you can uh, easily accommodate these historical appearances, these or his, these historical manifestations that differ from one century to the next within your understanding of reality and you can treat them within a context that takes them seriously that respects them even if you are also committed to uh, their eventual um, drifting off into some other manifestation but that doesn't that and I guess this is this is my question and this might be moving us a bit closer to the ultimate question of whether we agree or not, uh, doesn't that present a particular trouble 
for someone like you, whose job it is to uh, be sensitive to these historical uh, inflections? And doesn't that make it hard to accept at face value your contemporaries' talk uh, in the plural, that is, your contem- the talk of your contemporaries about this or that 21st century equivalent of Fugue Syndrome or St. Vitus Dance. Yeah, so I mean, I have ongoing admiration for um, Ian Hacking, as I said. Uh, and I think that just what, my, what I am trying to do, and I think what many of us um, working in um, you know, critical scholarship on psychiatry are trying to do, is to do like that plus Marxism, right? Because what's mm. really mixed, missing for me in hacking is sure things are um, constructed in what he calls a looping effect. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll come back to, back to that in a second. But then there's not really a question of um, whose interest is served in mm-hmm. particular cases, right? And, and sometimes that um, that's fine. And, you know, I don't think that science is ideology all the way down. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are currents within um, science, as in the rest of reality, in which um, certain interests are served, right? And so, to come back just briefly to to Ian Hacking's uh, idea about these things are both real and they are really made up, mm-hmm. right? That's the fundamental insight. And so, you know, one one good example of the kind of looping effect by which um, a conception uh, like like discourse comes to constitute reality to the same uh, extent that reality constitutes discourse is, uh, for instance, um, the way that symptoms uh, come to be measured uh, in, mm-hmm. in psychiatric diagnosis. So, so people often think that the first antidepressant drug was propermazine, which was invented in the 19, early 1950s and came to be used clinically. But actually, as historian Nicholas Rasmussen has shown, the first drug to be marketed for depression-like symptoms were amphetamines. It was Benzedrine, mm-hmm. which were very widely used in mm-hmm. the late 1920s and early 1930s. And one of the ways that this that 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 um, this was sold was that there is something called anhedonia or mm-hmm. lack of pleasure. Anhedonia is treated by this drug. Therefore, this drug must correspond to a disease entity because it's curing that thing. And so you begin to see that sort of looping effect. And another example of this might be, for instance, when you're designing functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI studies, which produce those like hot, you know, glossy, beautiful, colorful pictures of the brain where we're like, oh, we found the part of the brain that experiences X or is responsible for X. Mm. Well, when you're designing the tasks that someone does in those scanners, one of the marks of a good task is that it makes a discrete region light up. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's a very publishable result, yeah. right? And it, if it makes the, a discrete region line up, then you think, oh, this is a good task. And then that task comes to be used as a proxy for more and more um naturalistic conditions. So like doing this gambling task comes to be uh, a stand-in for a variety of naturalistic things that you experience in daily life outside the scanner. And so, so there is a looping effect there. And what I'm trying to do is to say some of those loops are being bent uh, in the interest of our enemies. 
Right, right, right. Yeah, hacking does not have a sophisticated understanding of the, or let's say, analysis of the economics behind uh, uh, this, these looping effects. Right. Um, I, I'm I'm trying to draw towards a close, but I I did want to talk briefly a bit more about neural links uh, and and uh, the history of neural implants um, because this is something you know so much about and what you've written about it in your wonderfully titled Shit for Brains uh, uh, article in The Baffler is so eye-opening. I mean, one thing I learned from you is uh, that the, um, the, the, the claim of any real innovation on the part of the Neuralink researchers uh, under uh, Elon Musk's direction is really a stretch, given that effectively the same uh, technology was already in place by the 1960s um, with the work of, uh, I believe his name is Jose Delgado. Um, And what Musk failed to acknowledge or attempted to conceal might be better is that all these neural implants are really doing uh, is blocking the motor system in the brain, uh, which is in the end, something that is fairly easily understood and fairly easy to control. Um, but that that is a whole different ballgame than the possible control of deeper, uh, more complex uh, and less easily definable uh, things like thoughts and emotions. Um, And here, I think you want to say, we're really no closer to being able to do this, let alone to do this at a large scale for human beings, rather than just a couple of pigs. We're really no closer now than, than Delgado was in the 1960s. Is that right? Um, so just, I just want to like maybe massage a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. your gloss here, because it's not that it's impossible to zap certain parts of the brain to produce, um, a psychological effect. So Mm -hmm. Wilder Penfeld was um, a pioneer in using electric stimulation in both animals and humans to elicit, um, psychological uh, responses that, that could include wild laughing uh, mania, extreme somnolence, um, extreme sexual arousal, and, and so on. But that it's much, I mean, we, we, it's much easier to know where to zap in the brain for motor control. And that often um, claims that we've made huge advances in neurolocalization of um, more diffuse concepts like for instance depression or PTSD mm-hmm. are riding on the you know I think pretty robust scientific work um, of, of neurolocalization for um, movement mm-hmm. and so they are trying to say well just like we found movement we're going to find PTSD and it's like well you know not so fast um there have, of course, been changes and advances and again, using advances with scare quotes here because it's like, well, advances to what? Like maybe, maybe not so great. Um, in the technology, uh, obviously the computers are better. Obviously, um, there's a, a movement to couple um, 
neural implant neural implants and the, and the data that they produce to um, to AI machine learning and that sort of thing that was not present in the in the sixties and you know the the electrodes are different in that there are more contact points now mm-hmm. um, that means that you're zapping more bits of the brain. Um, but I mean, Musk's idea that this is going to be a consumer commodity that's about equivalent to like an iPhone or as he, as he says, like a, it's a Fitbit for the brain. Mm-hmm. And there are like multiple regulatory and technological hurdles to overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, he, his company has developed a, a, a sewing machine. It's described as a sewing machine that functions essentially to use a needle to rapidly implant lots of electrodes over um, the cortex. Mm-hmm. Um, for this to be brought to a consumer price point where multiple people are using it, uh, first of all, you would have to um, get it automated so that you don't have the extremely expensive labor of a, of a, of a neurosurgeon overseeing mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And, and if one of these goes wrong, uh, you know, you're going to be back in regulatory hell, I I would hope, for right, quite some right. time. So it's not like you're just going to be able to, like, you know, bring this to, like, a, a shopping mall in the same way, <laughs> like, like, get your ears pierced at, like, flares <laughs> or something. Um, but there's also a question of, like, can you, with this um, electrode sewing machine, get the electrodes deep enough into the brain, deep enough into uh, deep brain structures that are... in the cortex is not as involved in emotion. The cortex is the outer covering mm-hmm. the brain as um, deep brain structures like the nucleus accumbens, um, like the amygdala. And it's a real question of whether you can stick the needle in that far without damaging other structures. Mm-hmm. And, and it, you know, there's a reason why the sewing machine has not been tried on humans yet, mm-hmm. which is like, it's pretty dicey. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think that what this gets to and what my critique uh, is of a lot of the ways that we on the left try to go about doing a critique of, of this type of bad science mm-hmm. um, is to say, well, unfortunately, it works. It works possibly too well and it's bad. Right. So like this is the kind of like, for instance, Shoshana Zuboff um, line, which is like, oh, like behavioral engineering or targeted advertisement works so well that it's in fact stripping us of like a certain concept of like liberal agency or whatever, mm-hmm. which like is not really something that I'm particularly invested mm-hmm. in uh, anyway. And I think that the critique we should be making more often is what if this thing doesn't work as well as they're saying it does, at least not for the thing that they're saying it's going to do. And it's still bad because it has other effects, right? Yeah. The other effects being that you'll accidentally hit a blood vessel or? Well, so one of the other effects would be that whether or not the data is like the data that's being harvested is effective in uh, doing what they say that it's going to do. Um, you know, this data is being speculated upon by venture capitalists for for a reason, which is that, well, you know, uh it will still be a valuable way to like couple neural data to like your phone data, right. for instance. Right, right. Right. And right. so like, but there are, you know, there are a variety of like other other things that you could um, make this sort of critique for. For instance, like machine learning, you know, it's it's one thing to to mount a critique of machine learning that says, um, well, clearly this is like bad because uh it's going to be used to like control us uh through like totally automated society. Right. But it's another, and I think maybe a better critique to say, well, a lot of the input that goes into training the machines 
uh, is in fact uh, underpaid human labor. A right. lot of the stuff that is is told to us as as being like the advent of total automation is actually just like there are there's hidden human labor in there that's making it appear as this like magical um, new technology. Right, 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 right. Oh, that's so interesting. That says so much. Um, uh, so trying to push towards an end. And one way to do that is just to just to get blunt about the question <laughs> and to repose it. Um, uh, and uh, so I'm not going to just straight straight up ask you what is mental health anyway. Um, but I, I am going to say that I, I think I got a hint of your answer already when we were talking about uh, your work on uh, Medicare and your, your conception of a future uh, public health system that would not simply be the current one plus state funding, but would rather be something that is conducive to human thriving. Uh, and that that would not eliminate mental illness certainly not. Uh, and i don't want don't get me wrong that is not what i'm saying right because because there is a, an ineliminable biological substratum to at least a good deal of mental illness yeah absolutely um would it significantly diminish mental illness or would it only diminish talk of mental illness and is this a good way to zero in on an answer to the, like a succinct answer to the question what well, mental health is? I mean, maybe I'll go ahead and, and, and answer the question, mm -hmm. even if you're like a little equivocal in posing it. I would say, what is mental health? Mental health is a terrain of struggle over the question of what human flourishing is mm -hmm. and how to achieve it. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Yeah, I do think that it is uh, it is it is an open question of what mental health might mean, mm -hmm. um, and and I think that's the the horizon that I see myself working towards, and many other people who are who are spending time thinking about these issues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we can't really answer it because it's. I mean, we can't give a pat definition. We can't give necessary and sufficient conditions because it, in a sense, opens up to a larger question about what the good life is and what the just society is, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. But I think it's a lot like, you know, asking um, like, what is sexuality, right? right? right, it's, right. Um, but I think my point is that even if a lot of the manifestations or instantiations of mental wellness, mental health are not um, something that we would really want to accede to or put our weight behind, um, there is a horizon where we are talking about um, human flourishing and, and ways to get towards it. And I think that's like where we need to be um, doing no. the work. Yeah. You know, I realize more and more as I, as I, as I advance in this podcast that I am a really shitty Socrates uh, because as I've, I've told you before, I, I tend to just uh, uh, find myself agreeing almost by definition with the person I'm talking to at any given moment. But I think that's particularly the case today. Uh, I think everything you're saying is really... Uh, yes, Socrates, <laughs> that is so. <laughs> <laughs> I think everything you're saying is really compelling. Um, so I... 
So I find I find it no reason to rule in disagreement or aporia. Uh, That's so, good because there's a bucket of slime <laughs> above my head, and it's just like uh, right. because he freed me, I would have been like slimed. Right? So maybe, this is a real belief. Yeah, maybe that would be a, an even better <laughs> conceit for a podcast when there's actually some kind of punishment <laughs> <laughs> that comes um, with disagreement. Um, but that's uh, that's the, these are some very valuable insights. What of yours should I read next? Um, well, I have not. Uh, turned, I, I think the, the pieces that I've published are not so extensive that it would take you very much time to, to read all of them. But mm-hmm. um, I have a piece in Pioneer Works on um, on, on the history of, of anti psychiatry. I have a piece coming out um, in Aeon soon about um about uh how uh kind of trying to give some texture on on what actually happens in fmri studies and uh have a single academic article inflict at your own risk (laughs) wonderful well i'll watch for that beyond please definitely so again uh thank you so much danielle danielle carr has been talking with me today about mental health. We have sought together an answer to the question, what is mental health? I don't think we really answered it. At least we didn't give a a single line definition, but we also found ourselves in spirited agreement. Uh, And thanks again, Danielle. Uh, once again, this is Justin E. H. Smith, and this is the What Is X podcast for The Point magazine. Uh, please join us next time.